Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us Philip Hamburger. Thank you so much for joining us, Philip. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, you're joining us from your office there in New York, is that correct? Yep, Columbia University. That's in the city of New York. Beautiful campus. I love that campus. I love that it has a campus. I mean, I remember visiting NYU and I was like, where is it? Like, wh wh what's going on here? Columbia, yeah, you know you're on, on a campus. And I love that. Uh, Philip is the founder and CEO of New Civil Liberties Alliance, which I apologize for that, uh, which New Civil Liberties Alliance, which litigates the matters that we're here to discuss today. So um, I'll hopefully make sure to say that at the end as well, in case you didn't get that down. But we're, I've, I've invited Philip on today to talk about his book, Purchasing Submission. The publisher is Harvard University Press, and the subtitle is Conditions, Power, and Freedom. So we're excited to get into this book. Um, it's a wonderful book. It, the subject matter is not wonderful, though. <laughs> I, I, I was reading. It's delightfully written. Um, it's, uh, it's tight. It's tightly written, um, meaning it, um, it, it doesn't mince words. It just gets right to it. And um, it's, it's very concerning to me, Philip. <laughs> this this book um tell us how you got into this material and uh, what led you to want to write the book yeah well I, I as you anticipated it's not a subject anyone would voluntarily want to dive into uh, to the extent it's part of administrative law it's tedious <laughs> yeah and conditions may be the most convoluted version of all of this um so Right, I, I, I didn't want it. Uh, it. It came out of an after-dinner conversation, actually, as I mentioned at the beginning of the book. I was sitting in the living room of a very good friend. Uh, we'd had a lovely dinner, some very nice wine. And I foolishly asked him, why haven't you published that article you were circulating uh, in draft? I haven't seen it published. Did it ever get published? And his answer was astonishing. He said, no, I haven't published it. I'm not allowed to publish it. Wait, that's odd. How can you not be allowed to publish just an academic article? This isn't the Soviet Union. It isn't 17th century England. And he explained that he had not received prior permission from an institutional review board. He had not remembered to go to the board, but had simply started collecting data and published. And sorry, and, and written, and then he couldn't publish. And I said, well, why don't you go ahead and publish? He said, no, that if I do that, they'll stop me from publishing in the other articles in the future. I said, well, can you still get permission? And he said, no, no, you have to get prior permission. You can't do it after the fact. I thought, this is really odd. This is like 17th century England. Now, I've, in my youth, um, I studied the Star Chamber. I've sat in Chancery Lane reading their manuscripts. I've, uh, until recently, I mostly did legal history. And it just seemed to me mind boggling. Uh, 
this is what happened to Galileo, right? He had to get prior permission. But then uh, my friend's wife chimed in uh, and she said, she's a, she's, she was a notable uh, cytogeneticist. And she said, yes, I lose several children a year because it's just too much hassle going through getting permission to look at the tissue banks. Well, this was really disturbing. Uh, <laughs> and the more I dug into it, the, the more horrific it was. We have prior licensing of academic speech in this country when it is so-called human subjects research, which means, of course, just talking to people or reading about people. It's bizarre. So that's how I got into conditions, yeah. because mm-hmm. conditions are the mechanism for enforcing the, the licensing. That's 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 amazing. So it's a free speech condition that was that a restriction on on your friend for publishing something. So it's basically control. You would say it's it's government control of inquiry. Is that how you would put it? Yes, of, of speech, both in making the inquiry and then in publishing it. Yeah. And it's a nice example, of course, because it illustrates two of the themes of my book. Uh, we don't really understand conditions uh, as anything more than limits on contracting. If your government buys an airplane, mm-hmm. why shouldn't it say, oh, we're not going to pay unless it flies? That's a perfectly reasonable condition. And most conditions are in perfectly reasonable contractual matters. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, the government uses conditions as a mode of regulation and as a means of suppressing constitutional rights, especially speech. Uh, and the courts don't know what to do with this. And so it's a new mode of power. You know, we thought government, you know, if you, if you schoolhouse rock, I'm a bill, mm-hmm. you know, we think right. that right. laws made through a representative assembly and they have some rule. And then there's a substitute, an irregular substitute for that called administrative power, in which an agency makes the rule, not Congress. Mm-hmm. An agency adjudicates, not the courts. And that's bad enough. But this is yeah. even worse, right? This is worse yeah. because you don't even have the pretense of, of, uh, of a rulemaking that binds people and adjudications. They buy your consent. They buy your consent to regulation and to giving up your rights. Yeah, that... There's a there's a lot there for folks that might not be attorneys or uh, be maybe they're they're listening and they're thinking okay but it's but it's consensual right right like there's some kind of <laughs> because people are so used to thinking consent is kind of the magic key that makes everything okay um, what was what I. Th- found to be the most interesting part of your book is that you take that head on and you say, hold on, not so fast. Consent isn't really the magical key that makes everything okay for the government to do this. Consent is usually a good measure of what's okay, usually, but not always. Um, And this consent business has um, misled a lot of otherwise superbly bright people. Uh, my friend and, and distinguished judge, Frank Easterbrook, um, at one point says, look, r- constitutional rights are all the more valuable if you can sell them, right? Because they can get money for them. That increases their value if consent allows you to give them up. And that vision, sort of libertarian vision is, I think, a step too far. Um, the constitution mm-hmm. is a law, right, that we make as a people. And 
that binds the government. The government cannot relieve itself, whatever, I, I may not want to exercise my constitutional right, but the government cannot relieve itself of its constitutional obligations, its constitutional duties, simply by getting my consent, nor of the consent of a state. I, I know in the 19th century, there was a Southern um, sort of proto-Confederate vision of, of mm-hmm. constitutional law in which it was a contract, right? And yeah. states could break away and state consent could alter constitutional duties. That was never our constitution and mm. was happily repudiated and uh, I guess unhappily and it's because it took a civil war, but fortunately <laughs> repudiated. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the constitution is a law made by the people. And so the government cannot escape its constitutional duties, its limits, including constitutional mm-hmm. rights, simply by getting consent. Um, any, you know, consent's a, a good thing generally, but anything can be taken too far. And in a way, you're kind of saying that we're stuck with these rights. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're right that it's difficult to understand because, and that's one, I think, one of the reasons yes, I think the government gets away with this. Yeah. It's so complicated. You know, mm-hmm. law is complicated enough and it simply constrains mm-hmm. us to tell, say, thou shalt not do X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z. Right. And administrative rules at least are comprehensible because it's just a different body, an agency, mm-hmm. not Congress, saying thou shalt not. Right. But here the government says, oh, we're giving you a gift. Here's a little present, money or some privilege. Mm-hmm. Oh, and as part of that, of course, we expect you to do X, Y, and Z, but it's just part of a package. And you could say, you know, carrots are better than sticks. And generally that's very appealing. But again, it, it, it can turn into something else. We like carrots. That's true. Yeah. I think it might be helpful to step back a little bit and and talk about rulemaking and adjudication, uh, the administrative law mm-hmm. stuff, just just to give people a refresher of how that's different than um, regulation by Congress directly, like where Congress is making a law, it's a statute, it's binding, it's clear, um, it's enforceable. Um, so regulation by agency, would be when Congress delegates fund something and delegates um, how something is spent um, through some kind of agency and says the secretary or whoever's running that agency will basically propose and a, a set of rules, right. That are go through, they're supposed to go through notice and comment, I think. Right. right, which In is normal case. democracy. <laughs> yeah, and that that notice and comment process. That, let's describe that a little bit, uh, just to get people, because uh, I don't think a lot of people pay attention to that, um, unless you're a regulated industry. Maybe then then you're paying close attention to that. Um, right. But uh, let me lay out the structure a little bit here. Yeah, and okay. perhaps some examples. Uh, great. Thank you. Right. So the prototypical mode of lawmaking, what we consider law, is an act of Congress. Mm-hmm. Congress is elected by us. And there are all sorts of imperfections, of course, in the consent obtained through elections, but it, it is relatively consensual. And those elected persons in Congress will make a statute. And this is a public act by a public body acting with public debate. Um, and it is authorized by the Constitution, and more fundamentally, it's based in longstanding modern ideas about 
consent and government through consent and that no one has legitimate power over you except through that collective consent. It's the foundation of modern life. But of course, people in power always are looking for other, other <laughs> uh, less regular avenues or, or text dark little pathways to exercise power. Uh, and uh, since the late 19th century, increasingly in the 20th, uh, the federal government and many states now govern us in a slightly different way. Um, the legislature, Congress, if you will, uh, authorizes an, part of the executive, an agency, or sometimes even an independent agency, mm. which is unelected um, and not really accountable and often protected even from ordinary political controls for the president, um, authorizes them to make the rules that bind us. So although ideally we're, we govern ourselves through Congress and we are in a some sense the author of the laws, now the laws are made by bodies that we don't elect. And that's, that's administrative power, administrative lawmaking, they call it rulemaking. Um, and, it's in a, and the medievals understood this stuff. They recognized this as absolute power and they called it just, they, they said there's a regular mode of making law through consent of community. And then there's irregular power in which the king or his minions, his commissions make the rules. And that's worrisome, of course. Uh, there's a disjuncture between the rulemaking and us. And quite apart from questions of legitimacy, it leads to misunderstandings, right? Because yeah. government that's not accountable to us oh. will often be doing things that lead to a lot of tension. And we see that right now, obviously. A lot of the right. alien government is against the administrative state. It's not really against our go constitutional government. Right. All that's bad enough, but at least it's, you know, what you, if you want to praise administrative power, you could say administrative law, as they call it. Uh -huh. um, one might observe that it's at least pretending to be law. Yes. It pretends to work through rules. It pretends to have some accountability to the people, not through elections, but by giving notice of the rule and then receiving comments. It's a mockery of Republican government, but it's at least it goes through a pretense. Um, right, and right. Adjudications are done by agencies, but they pretend to be independent. Of course, as the SEC has just proved recently, it's not at all independent judgment. It's quite biased, but they at least make mm -hmm. the pretense. Um, the difficulty and, is that, and there's a secure, there's a, an adjudication process in the the right. administrative law structure, but it's right. it's in either the executive branch or it's in an administ it's in what you called an ind independent agency, well, or an is, supposedly independent part of an agency. Yeah, right. of okay. Not really independent. By it's independent, we mean it's not. It doesn't clearly fall just in the executive branch. Right. 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 Well, the, of the three branches. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So the would so be like a fourth branch. Sometimes it's thought that way. Okay. I get confused, but it's uh, it, it's certainly these agent these the point is that these agencies aren't politically accountable in the way Congress is, right, and they're right. not really uh, exercising independent judgment the way Article Three real judges do. They don't give right. a jury and all that. Right, However, right. to praise them, yeah. they at least recognize the ideal and pretend. So we have our real mode of government. Mm -hmm. which has real political accountability through elections. That's why voting rights matter. Mm -hmm. And it has real independent judges, Article Three judges, generally highly principled and serious people. And then we have the agency version of this, which is a mockery of lawmaking and a mockery of adjudication. But at least it, yeah. it has, you know, hypocrisy. There's an administrative law judge. There's right. a, there's a, there is, uh, you're, 
you do have an, a, a possibility of appeal if um, there's yeah. an agency bureaucrat yeah. that makes a judgment against you, which is usually right. costs you money somehow. And it's not, it, it, you don't, it's a highly limited right of appeal. And, yeah. you, and you can't, and you can never That's get right. the jury. Um, but we have yeah. to. Right, but right. About conditions is that it's something else. Uh, yeah. So you're saying uh, now the subject matter of this book is going even further. So if right. once you get into the weeds on administrative law and you, you see this for what it is, it's it's not really politically accountable in the way that someone running for Congress is politically accountable. These bureaucrats are appointed politically. Sometimes they can't even be removed by the president. Right. Um, in, in the federal case. Um, so if the president appoints someone to the SEC, for example, um, I think that was an independent agency. That was an example of an in, independent it, it agency. It has become an independent agency. There was a okay. question about it, but it is considered generally an independent agency. That's right. Yeah. Well, if the, uh, I think the, the way the framers designed the executive branch, the way they had it in mind was that the president would be able to fire right. anybody that uh, in the president's judgment was not doing or what was hurting the public or harming um, going against policies or the constitution um, that, that, and, and the president was accountable to the people. So it was like um, there was some accountability there, right. but, but once once you get these agencies that have a life of their own, they're creating laws. They're creating actually laws. Would you say it's law? It yeah, is it, law. In reality, it's lawmaking. They call it, yeah. they say it's not, but it is lawmaking. That's right, 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 right. And, and even, even the politically accountable agencies, the ones in the executive branch where the head of the agency could be fired, um, they're not, these are not representative bodies, just as the right, president right. is not a representative body. So it isn't the sort of consent that you get in a legislature. Um, gotcha. English kings were accountable to the people. They didn't vote for their king, but they would occasionally lop off their, the king's head and put in a new one. But you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't, even then you wouldn't say the kings were representative. I don't know why I was laughing when you said they would lop off his head, but it was, it, it, it that's, it's, that, that, that's quite a way to, uh, to make the king accountable, I guess, but yes, it doesn't give him a second chance. Right. So be it. Yeah. Um, any rate, right. So, so if we think about these layers of this, it's really a degradation of law. We have mm -hmm. a law that's authorized by us through elections. That's why we care, if you care about voting rights, you will care about this. Yes. Um, and then there's the, the rules, the sort of mock law that comes to the administrative state. But then there's an even greater degradation of law, which is when the government rules us, um, by making deals. You could call it the privatization of law because there isn't a public act by a public mm -hmm. body elected by the people. Um, there may be a proposed condition that's adopted by Congress or more typically by an agency, but the actual imposition of that rule comes through private transaction. Mm -hmm. and we don't even know what those transactions are because normally they're not published. Oh, yes. um, the government can actually, and one of the ways this avoids po politics and, and hurts people is the government has an unpopular rule it imposes, or an unconstitutional one. It imposes through conditions. It says, well, we're not violating the constitution. This is not binding anyone. And then it can buy people off, make a private separate peace. You can say, oh, you, um, you look weak. You're going to agree with us on this. And then all the people right, right. who might've fought back lose an ally and they can't compete. Mm -hmm. 
with folks who are getting government money, so they have to submit. So this is exceedingly dangerous stuff. One of the things I like about your book is, um, <laughs> is you explain not only how this is a, what you call a, a new pathway of power, a new mode of control, but you also explain why it's poorly understood. And I think that the, both of those things need to be explained because I, I think that that's one of the first things I thought was, why is this not, why, why is there not more of a groundswell against this? Right. And I guess the reason is, is because maybe people aren't really fully aware of what's happening. It's not that they're okay with it. If they were aware, is that kind of where you're going with that? I think there are layers here. One is the sheer complexity of some of these arrangements. The institutional review boards I mentioned earlier are part of an immensely complicated regulatory regime. And almost by design, one can scarcely wrap one's mind around it. It took me years to fully understand it. Another problem, of course, is the counterintuitive way in which you're sold oh we're not constraining you we're actually giving you a gift why are you right, being right. so um ungrateful as to protest that the <laughs> gift has limits right um and so and of course many of us are quite happy to get gifts you know when the government hands out money are you going to be the one who says oh no i'm above receiving that or <laughs> um, you're a business and you need to be licensed right you to say oh no i'm not i'm going to give up my business because the license comes with a condition you have no choice mm. but to accept the license. So even the most powerful bodies in, in our country, you know, imagine international banks with more money than one can imagine. The, these organizations or the universities, culturally very powerful, lots of money. When the government dangles the condition in front of them, they take it because um, they know they need the government license or they need the government money and they don't wanna be competing against others who are getting it. So it's actually profoundly coercive, even though, yeah. of course, let's say, oh, it's, it's just a gift. It's not coercive. You've <laughs> Can used I give an example. Sure. Yeah. Go in a few examples just to make it yeah, real. Absolutely. Yeah. The examples like some, are. Some, um, I don't want to say they're funny, but curious ones. Um, so uh, the first example I want to give is chemical castration, something I'd never really thought about <laughs> until I studied this. Um, so some states, offer parole to sex offenders on the condition right. that they submit to regular injections that chemically castrate them. Yeah. <laughs> Not thought, I think, for most men, but, you know, if you want to be free, uh, this is what you have to do. This already raises some interesting constitutional problems, mm. right? Um, but of course it gets better or worse, depending on your sense of humor and how sick it is. Um, right. California adds that offenders can avoid the chemical castrations if you don't want those nasty chemicals in your body. If you voluntarily submit to permanent surgical castration. So we have our government castrating people. And this is a current thing. It's not like this is current. Now, (laughs) I don't want to be standing up for sex, sex offenders, right? Well, that would be very politically uh, unpalatable. (laughs) <laughs> but that's not that's it's not about them it's about right. governance uh yes we don't like I, I think we should pause before endorsing a government that castrates people regardless of what they've done imprison them or don't imprison them but yeah. castrating them really um let me give you a more pleasant example uh in 1961 Jimi hendrix was twice caught riding a stolen car and 
the local prosecutor made a deal with him. He said, you can stay out of prison um, if you join the army, right? That's a condition. And, and these, right. sort of, these conditions imposed in the criminal process are very common, even if not that particular one. Um, so he chose to enlist. He's assigned to the 101st Airborne, which may have been peculiarly unsuited for him. Anyway, mm-hmm. for, for our, blessedly for us and the army, um, he was soon honorably discharged and the rest is rock and roll history. without damage to his hands. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. So, well, that's a, that's kind example, of an older example. How, how, how far back do these examples go? What's right. So, because uh, right. so, this is a new mode, right? It's a new mode of control. So how new is it? Right. So conditions have always been with us. They've always occasionally been used as a mode of regulation, mm-hmm. but the persistent regular use of conditions as a mode of regulation is much more recent. Um, and it comes with the growth of the federal government and its, and its finances. So in the 1960s, and then especially the 1970s, it becomes a regular mode of control. Uh, and then of course, it, more recently um, in, you know, in, the, in this century, profoundly so. The amounts of money involved are staggering. I won't try to, maybe I should try to find the numbers here. Um, But we're we're talking about just hundreds of billions of dollars. And when you dangle that in front of people, they say, yeah, I'll I'll do whatever you want. You want me to dance? I'll dance. You want me to suppress someone's rights? I'll do it. Whatever you want. And that's terrifying. Yes. There was an example you gave early on, Title IX, Title IX on campuses, federal funding for federal, for educational institutions that discriminate on the basis of sex. um, The Department of Education, I'm quoting you on page three, the Department of Education interpreted this condition to require such institutions to bar not only sexual harassment, who could be against that, right? I mean, who could be for that? I should should, should say. To, uh, so this is a uh, attempting to regulate um, or try to prevent sexual harassment, I guess, on campus as a condition of of receiving funds. So I'm I'm going to go back to um, quoting you. The Department of Education interpreted this condition to require such in- institutions to bar not only sexual harassment as traditionally understood, but also much student speech on sexual matters, Uh, adding to the constitutional concerns, the department interpreted the condition to require institutions to enforce these requirements through little inquisitorial tribunals which tended to be systematically prejudiced against the accused. And that's on page four that that stops. That's an interesting case because there's at least two constitutional rights there that you've referred to speech and due process, a major feature of due process, at least the way I've always understood it is, is that the process is not supposed to be, systematically prejudiced against the accused um and so now is this is an example of what you're talking about right you know it's uh 
Yeah, I think Title what, Nine. What is, could go wrong? <laughs> right, the most familiar <laughs> example these days. Um, yeah, just a little background. So, why why do we see this problem in education? And the answer is, for a long time, education seemed clearly beyond the authority of Congress. But the court, Supreme Court has expanded, given such an expansive understanding of the commerce power that this has come to be, you know, slowly snuck into. Uh, the commerce power. But still, even, you know, recently, even in recent decades, there was hesitation to legislate directly on education. That might be unconstitutional, and we may yet see the court pause at that point. So to avoid that constitutional limit on congressional power, what did Congress do when they come to the civil rights law on education? They say, ah, we're not going to regulate educational institutions. We're just going to offer you some money. But with the money, comes this limit on discrimination. And again, sounds wholesome up to right. a point. Um, there are all sorts of problems with this. Uh, these are private bodies. Uh, they may have reason to discriminate in favor of girls and against boys or vice versa. Um, boy, I, I went to some boys' schools when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Didn't get any. Um, did it have some merit? Yes, some cost too. But I don't mm-hmm. want to debate that. That's not the issue here. The point right. is that this becomes a mode of control, a mode of regulation that avoids the constitutional limits of congressional power. Now, it also runs into constitutional rights because the Department of Education has interpreted these conditions and essentially added to the, the statutory condition um, to make it a, a limit on speech, on sexual speech, and of course, particularly politically inflected sexual speech. Because it's what you know, we can distinguish between the sort of speech that actually hurts somebody that amounts to a tort, um, right? And the sort of speech that actually is doing more than that, it's a political statement and is not really aimed at a particular person. And of course, there's a gray area in between, but these are this is something this is a sort of thing which the courts traditionally have been very protective free speech by require by limiting the degree to which it all gets swept into tort law. So there's a speech problem here, but then it's accentuated by the due process problem. How, how is this? It's not only a mode of regulation. It not only is a way of suppressing a substantive right. It also suppresses a procedural right. And here, yeah. conditions have been really terrible because what they've done is they've used conditions to shift not only rulemaking uh, to rulemaking to the schools because they make their own rules, of course, barring uh, suppression, uh, suppression of speech. They go much further than what even the Department of Education does, but they also shift the adjudication to these little tribunals. So no judge, no jury, usually no lawyer, burden of proof is not on the people making the claim. You don't have a right to know your witnesses and so forth, no confrontation. It, it's, yeah. it's genuinely inquisitorial, but this yeah. Possible because right. they, oh, this is just private. It's just the education institution. Right. We, the government, have nothing to do with this. <laughs> um, right. Privatized lawmaking and education, which removes and creates a sort of freedom from all constitutional limits. I think that uh, some of those examples that I'm familiar with on, on campuses have actually put um, restrictions on the accused even talking about it. Right. So in other words, they can't even share what they're going through right. with other people to get that support. Right. <laughs> if they're falsely accused, they're totally alone. 
Right. The, at, the, at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, we actually mm. have um, uh, sent out a, a, a guy dressed in a kangaroo costume to, to campuses to advertise oh. to students and parents the danger of kangaroo courts. And wow. they, they love it. Um, but this, this suppression of speech is now commonplace. For example, and this is another of our cases, uh, the Securities Exchange Commission uses conditions on settlements to bar defendants from talking about their cases. Mm. And the net result is, of course, that the SEC, which uses biased administrative uh, mm-hmm. features, um, has a really sort of corrupt system of adjudication, um, uses conditions to protect itself from public criticism by the very people who know the problem best, and who, of course, have a due process right to talk about their situation and find other defendants to see if there's systemic problems, which, of course, there are. So the, t- the idea of you can buy someone's speech and thereby pr- and also and, and protect a loss of the process um, runs throughout the system. Something's attached to that. It's the license. It's the SEC license that they what, grant. What the SEC does is it will threaten proceeding administrative proceedings against individuals, um, which are themselves biased because the ALJ is not independent. The decisions are reviewable by political body, the, the commissioners. Um, but then when they reach a settlement, um, they have a rule saying you can't settle unless you give up your speech rights to criticize okay. us. <laughs> Power must be great. <laughs> That's amazing. That's truly amazing. And and so in order to trade securities, you have to uh, no, no, agree not order, to that? No, or? no, no it's, it's, if you're accused of violating the securities laws gotcha. or regulations. And you want to settle, then you have right. to agree. It doesn't mean that everybody who's accused is actually guilty, but you would never know. Right. That, of bias proceedings and the defendants can't even talk about it afterwards. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is as a, if you're, let's say you're going through school there in New York and you want to be, you want to trade securities. That's what you want to do. Um, You have to be fully aware of that. If you're going to get this license, because this, it's kind of like, if you get this license, then you're kind of agreeing that this wink, wink, this is, if you are going through this education process and you do want to settle, that is what you're agreeing to when you, you're in this field. <laughs> well, quite, quite apart from the settlement issue, there's a regulation point you're making, which is very important. Okay. Um, many agencies, including the SEC, use conditions as a way of regulation. So the SEC authorizes FINRA, which, um, and, and, and you're required to get licenses before serving you know, as, as a broker and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then the conditions imposed through this process become the mode of regulating you. So consent is used as, in, in place of the lawmaking process or even the ordinary right. regulatory process. So if you think, you, you might, you know, listeners may think, well, you know, the administrative state isn't so bad. Maybe we right. need experts and not properly accounted people making rules. Mm-hmm. I can see the argument. I, mean, I disagree with it, but I, I can see the argument. It's not unreasonable, but this is something very different. It's not mm-hmm. a. It's not about rulemaking. It's about a control through privatization, through uh, turning everything into a deal. Um, and this is common even in my field. Lawyers are regulated through bar associations, right? Um, mm-hmm. To get to have the privilege of serving as a lawyer. You need to be licensed. 
You have right. to submit the regulations that come through that process. And, you know, it, and so regulation has been devolved to essentially a private body, bar associates and the like, mm-hmm. that control one through conditions and licenses. This is now pervasive in our society. Yes. So the schoolhouse rock vision of the world in which we govern right. ourselves uh, with consent uh, has <laughs> nothing to do with the reality. There's a continual degradation of law to ever lower levels in which, and conditions, of course, aren't the very worst. There's also governance through extortion and threat, which is more common than you think. But conditions are pretty low on that, on the, on that totem pole. Right. <laughs> you gave an example of... Um... <clears throat> Uh, let's give some more, maybe another example. Uh, there's another example of uh, the drinking age, uh, which is kind of a federalism issue. States normally would regulate that historically through the police power. Is that right? right. Um, so there was a federal funding of, of um, I think it was highways. Was that right? Where the state could not get this money for federal highways if I think it was maintenance of federal highways or something like that, or maybe construction, I can't remember, but that's right. Okay. And, um, the, uh, the condition was you had to raise the drink drinking age. If it was 18, you had to raise it to 21. The state had to, right. And the federal government was, (laughs) so this is interesting because it gets into the, another thing that you mentioned, which is, that you said that there's no general spending power. Um, well, actually there's, well, the spending power that there is, is really a limitation right. on um, the taxing, the power, taxing right. power. Right. So I had to slow way down and go back to the constitution and read that. And say, okay, I'm following you on this. The, um, the, the government does have power to tax, obviously. And there is this interesting clause that has the word general welfare in it. Um, and it does. So what does the word general welfare mean? You're saying it's a restriction on what the tax can be used for, right? That's right. Let me go say more about South Dakota versus Dole, the case. Oh, yes. Uh, South Dakota versus Dole. Question about general welfare. Okay. So in South Dakota versus Dole, the court upheld a condition on federal grants to the states. Uh, The federal government said, oh, you states, you like to build highways, provide lots of jobs, you get roads, blah, blah, blah. So here's some money, but you get it on the condition that you raise your drinking age to 21. Um, large numbers of uh, 20 year olds started weeping, no doubt, but there's, <laughs> there's something serious going on here. Um, had the federal government, had Congress enacted that there should be no, that no one um, should drink under the age of, uh, age, um, under, the 20, under the age of 21, um, this may, may very well have been held unconstitutional. This is mm. not within Congress's power to regulate directly. But that's no problem, they said. We can get around that uh, by just giving you money and saying you're going to agree to it. But this is not even direct regulation of individuals through a condition. It's regulating the states. It's directing the states in a key matter of state policy. The The court excused this by saying, well, drinking has something to do with highway deaths and highway deaths has something to do with 
with highways and highways have to do with highway construction. Yeah, right. Um, the drinking age has nothing to do with highway construction, right? Right. Um, might be one thing to say, oh, here's money for highways and you have to build them with concrete that doesn't fail within 10 years. That at least would be related right. to the money. This is really quite distantly related. So this is clearly a matter of regulation and the government admitted as much. It is, is consistently said, this is a way of regulating the drinking age. So here's a condition being used to regulate and it's done by directing the states and state policy. Now, the court has developed a, a commandeering doctrine barring the um, federal commandeering of the states, directing them in their policies. But they, you know, there has to be coercion for there to be commandeering. And this, this, this isn't coercion because it's just a deal. It's just contractual. Right. Well, this is nonsense. Um, the commandeering doctrine is misnamed. It's really a structural point. The federal government cannot treat the states as French departments, as sort of subordinate entities. It can pass a law that trumps state law, but it can't tell states what their policy. And this is a way of directing state policy. Now, all of this was created by the problem that you got to, right? That's the underlying problem. It's a spending problem. Mm -hmm. um, the Constitution authorizes spending through its particular powers. So if your government wants to, federal government wants to spend, it has to see, well, does the spending necessary and proper for any one of our particular powers? Um, and there is no relevant power as to highway construction. But the federal government, perhaps you could put it into the Commerce Clause. But you certainly can't put drinking age into that. Um, but and but the, the problem is that the Constitution, in its taxing clause, its very first power, says Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, da 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 da, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. In other words, for general federal purposes. Now, what does that mean? Um, even Alexander Hamilton, who had a grander vision of federal power than anyone else on the planet. Um, was quite candid that this barred the distribution of federal money to the states or localities. You can spend for federal things, but you cannot give money to states or cities or counties. The, the oh, judges right. have found in this, invented a general spending power, and if, but regardless of that, they forget the general welfare limitation. They say, oh, it doesn't really mean anything. And in any case, it's non-judiciable. Um, this is nonsense, and it's dangerous nonsense because that enables the federal government to buy the states. Right, and so right. much of our regulation now goes beyond federal power, and it does it by painting the states and thereby directing state policy. It's a very dangerous abandonment of, con of an explicit limit in the Constitution. Yeah, and, and so when people are upset about uh, perceived violation of, of voting rights, um, uh, restrictions that seem un, unreasonable, like voter ID to some people, that seems unreasonable. Uh, it's kind of ironic because <laughs> what you're saying is that um, there's all sorts of things that go uh, the, in the ways, it almost seems like most of the ways that you're regulated, whether it's the state or whether it's a business or even a private person, a student at, at a university or a researcher at a university, is it really tied directly to anything that you vote on? Right. Does that sound right? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's interesting. We've, 
we fuss, quite rightly fuss, about yeah. voting rights sure. at the retail level. If a single yeah. individual is denied his or her voting rights, we care, and we should care. This is crucial. Yes. But while we have such deep concern about retail violations of voting rights, we shut our eyes to the wholesale violations. And this is a whole administrative power is a wholesale violation of it. And so are conditions because it transfers law. They say, yeah, yeah, you, you people, you can vote. You can keep your Republic, but the voting, the actual laws are not going to be made by the people you elect. Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, so voting rights actually becomes a sort of switch and bait. Right, um, right, right. Switch. You're told you get voting rights, but the law isn't made by the people you elect. It's astonishing. And of course, this was intentional. Um, Woodrow Wilson is quite candid about this already in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, he says the reformer, meaning himself, is bewildered by the need to persuade. I'm quoting, by the way, these are not my words. The need to persuade a voting majority of several million heads. And, and I must emphasize I'm quoting because this is disagreeable language. He says, this means we need, you know, voting means we need to influence, and I'm going to quote, the mind not of Americans of older stocks only, but of Irishmen, of Germans, of Negroes. And he elaborates the bulk, and again, quotation, the bulk of mankind is rigidly unphilosophical. And nowadays, the bulk of mankind votes. You can see what he thinks about this voting business. Yeah. And he adds, where, where is this unphilosophical bulk of mankind more multifarious in its composition, i.e. diverse, than in the United States? So in order to get a footing for new doctrine, one must influence minds cast in every mold of race, minds inheriting every bias of environment, warped by the histories of a score of different nations, warmed or chilled, closed or expanded by almost every climate of the globe. This is if he's Montesquieu saying that the climate affects the mind. Uh, this is disgracefully racist and prejudiced stuff, but that's the foundation of this degradation of law, of the administrative state, and then of ruling by conditions. It's an assault on voting rights, quite deliberate, and it's a, and it's a bait and switch. You get to vote, but you don't, you, you don't elect the people who make the laws. So what you're saying is that that um, you were quoting Wilson, right? It was yes. uh, who became president. He was probably the first president that considered himself a progressive, right? He was called that. Yeah. Um, he was actually a Democrat, right? He was part of the Democratic Party. Um, but he wrote that, was it in congressional government or where did he write that? Um, it was a, a lot of some kind of review right, that's article. 1987, uh, uh, essay. Essay. Okay. Uh, right. And I, so he's an academic, right, an academic and, he, and he thought very carefully about what America should be. He wasn't happy with the way it was in terms of the constitutional structure, the, con, um, the, uh, the enumerated powers, the limitations on government, what it could do, the written constitution, that that's a limitation. Um, and so there was a new vision of governing by expertise, right? That was, well, if it's going to be really government by expertise, it has to be untethered to what you just, what he just described, not you, but he, what you were reading that he would just describe, he would just take himself as describing um, the world, right? He, that's how he saw it. He thought he was just being honest. Look, let, let's take a look at who people are. Mm-hmm. And do you really want these people, um, uh, voting on stuff and, and, and regulating based on their un, 
expertise, their their non expertise, their ill formed judgment. Right. It's worth it's ironic because he was a Democrat, and right. you don't don't think of a Democrat as um, saying something like that. Well, I think the progressives uh, self consciously undermined representative government, uh, and they did it in two ways: one by breaking it down by creating the ministry of state, and two by appealing directly to the people. For example, for plebiscites. But the goal is to break down the hierarchies of representative government and mm-hmm. substitute something that. Has a, allows an elevated class of experts to claim the mantle of authority of the people, but without the institutions that might hold them accountable. And right. you know, I, it's worth emphasizing, and this is important, that um, although the administrative state and these de- the degradation of law, you know, downhill eventually towards conditions, has its origins in a lot of racism. Um, I, I don't think the advocates of this today. Are, are typically racist, but what they do share with Woodrow Wilson is class disdain, class disgust uh, for, for people who are lesser than them. Um, and they measured this in terms of education and, uh, and it's not real education, it's not real knowledge, but the, uh, the systematized academic knowledge that they think gives them status. So a degree, academic degree from Columbia allegedly gives one some status. Um, whether it's real knowledge is an entirely different matter. That depends very much on the individual. So um, what we do have to worry about underlying all of this, the the inevitable hierarchies, people like to elevate themselves about others, but when they do it in a way, and knowledge and education is good, but when they do it in a way that leads them to feel disgust for the fellow citizens and leads them to want to deprive the fellow citizens with the right to govern themselves, the way that undermines a republic, that deprives people of their rights, I think we have to be very worried. Mm-hmm. It's not ordinary class disdain. That's um, uh, yeah. So the racism that was there also had classism, right. and and it would be a genetic fallacy to say, well, the origin of this way of thinking was racist, and so therefore now the way it is, the current iteration is racist. But you're saying that. It's it's an accurate description, though, to say that the classism is still there. That's and right. It was there at the beginning. It's still there, and um, that's that's something to be worried about. You've and used the term say, extortion. Okay, sorry. No, so I was, I was just going to say I don't think the racism is irrelevant. It's okay. not historical in this sense. Um, the progressive use of administrative power was fairly racist, actually, until quite recently, for most of the history of the administrative state, you know, in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, FDR uses his power in a way that is often more advantageous to white-dominated unions, right? Than oh, right. That's right. Um, it, what's, so I don't think it's the distant past. It's also part of the more recent past. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other point is that a disgraceful history like this, the racism... Right. At the very least, should make us pause. So, if one's dedicated to elite governance, mm-hmm. um, perhaps the racism will make one pause. The, 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 the disgraceful origins need not dictate one's result, as you point out. That could be a genetic fallacy, but it should make one worry, because uh, the moves made to empower people in response to racism should just get one's antennae up to to reconsider. Right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense to me. If you think government by expertise, which is what this is, would you say, or does it go beyond that? 
Well, um, I wish it were really expertise. Yeah, right. <laughs> and of course, expertise. Even as the words were coming science. out of my mouth, I was thinking, wait, that's is that not that's not really what it is. Um, right. Expertise. It pretends to be that, I guess. Right. So, so one way of thinking of it is expertise is um, is is old uh, defunct science um, mm-hmm. because, of course, expertise assumes a degree of confidence in right. One that has been regularized, reduced to, to intangible, uh, useful terms. Um, but cutting-edge science, of course, is all about questions. It's, it's yeah, where yeah. knowledge is highly unstable. Um, and of course, the, uh, the process in which old scientific theories are challenged, new ones are formed and, and, and accepted, has been accelerated profoundly. It used to be that knowledge changed over millennia, then over centuries, then over decades. We're now at the point in which new theories in many fields pop up year by year, if not month by month. And so the idea that any of this could be regularized into expertise doesn't make sense unless we're talking about uh, knowledge that is no longer anywhere near the cutting edge, which is why so much expert regulation actually is highly destructive of scientific progress. Um, that's true whether in the IRB world. I mean, it's quite funny, like you see, or, or in the you know, manufacturing of cars. Um, you know, there have been hearings where Congress, and, sorry, where agencies and their experts have questioned you know, General Motors uh, uh, engineers about brake systems, which you know, the, the engineers are developing in new ways and the regulators are thinking about in terms that are 10 years old. Or in the case of IRBs, uh, you have members of institutional review boards who are not actually in the field of the, of the scientists trying to do work, questioning methods that are indeed cutting edge and interesting that need to be tested. They are uncertain, but they are sometimes wonderful and productive. And the folks on the committee are saying, no, you can't do that. That's not what I learned when I was a graduate student. Mm. And the result is just to stifle scientific advances. Can I throw in a little bit about the IRBs here? Because please one go, bit, go for it. You might yeah. think this is just academic to have licensing of academic research and publication. Right. But as I explained the book, there's a body count, and the body count makes Vietnam look like small potatoes. <laughs> um, wow. We're all going to live shorter lives because of these institutions. Um, if you if you suppress or even just delay scientific inquiry and particularly biomedical inquiry, people are going to die. And you can actually document this. So there's one study, I won't bore you with the details, one study in which chat was this HHS suppresses it for failing to get reviewed by an IRB. It nonetheless gets published and it saves 17,000 lives a year, a year in the United States alone. Over a decade, because that's a 2006 publication, over just one decade, were therefore up to 170,000 lives saved. You suppress serious study, you're gonna kill people. And of course, it's particularly hard on minorities because (laughs) IRBs were designed particularly to protect minorities, in other words, to prevent research on the peculiar diseases of minorities. Mm Net result, if you're a member of minority, uh, you don't get as much benefit from science and that's government policy imposed. Wow. You know, I, 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 I've always thought before I read this, uh, that IRBs were just purely kind of ethical bound guardrails. <laughs> like, um, we're just here to make sure you're thinking about all the, the ethical concerns that, you know, human subject research would require. 
but you're saying there this goes way beyond that goes beyond it's it's is it would you say it's extortion you've you've used the term this, extortion. Right, so we can talk about extortion let me talk about IP. yeah yeah we'll do extortion when um, i when you use the term when you use the e-word extortion my my antenna went way up and i was like okay i'm gonna pay really close attention to what you're saying here so extortion everybody agrees that extortion is bad right before we get assume. to extortion yeah let, let, let's yeah. talk about the irbs briefly um what they do is they delay and often prevent research into the medical problems that we need to have solved to live longer. Um, you know, take my wife, for example, right. she needs to takes um, some medicine when she's pregnant just mm. for her sake and the baby's sake. We have no idea how much, why not? And too much would be bad and too little would be bad, but we have no guide on this. Why? Because uh, institutional review boards have impeded research into the problems faced by pregnant women and their babies supposedly to protect them from being subject to human research. And undoubtedly they save a few lives now and then, but that's an aromatic increase. And there's no proof that they save much lives. I'm willing to just concede perhaps they do, but the loss in life is geometric because, you know, and we know that you're saying we know yeah. we can show that. Yeah. Cause the, you, one research study may put at risk one or two people usually doesn't hurt them, but one, but the lives saved from the discoveries can save tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. And I might add, we're not talking about use of institutional rule boards under FDA regulation. That's a separate, a separate issue. I'm mean, talking about the use of IRBs to regulate academic research. So, academic research, yeah. right, so conditions have been used to institute 17th century style suppression of speech, the sort that was used against Galileo. And this necessarily destroys science. I, John Milton is Arapagitica in 1644, recalls that he went to Italy and he visited Galileo in prison. And afterwards he talked to some Italian scientists and they all said, yes, science has been suppressed in Italy ever since then. And actually I was talking to a physicist uh, just last wow. week. Wow. And we were talking about this and a very distinguished physicist. And, and he said, you know, science in Italy never recovered. Wow, that is amazing to me. It's, it's quite, because it, it was part of a culture that suppressed inquiry. And by the way, we're mm. now facing this because other countries are leaping ahead of us in, in biomedicine um, because we are subject to prior licensing. And you might think that's yeah, gonna save someone's life. That's not usually what's at stake. It's usually about questioning that might offend somebody. Right? Yeah. The National Science Foundation used to say, you know, don't ask questions that are insensitive. <laughs> wow. But the net result is, you know, all of us will have shorter lives and minorities in particular. That's not a good result. Yeah. And this is a cultural thing. When you mentioned the Italy example, right. that, that, that's a different concern now. That's, that's like you, we're paying, you got to pay attention to this for a cultural reason that goes far into the future. What right. kind of culture are we? I mean, that, that blows my mind that Italy never recovered. I mean, that, the, the, Think of it this way. People often say that um, politics is downstream of culture. Mm -hmm. I don't like the downstream metaphor because it's too simplistic. But if you're going to take that metaphor, remember that culture is also downstream of law. If people get accustomed to being ordered around, yes. controlled through conditions, they'll lose their sense of independence and freedom, including their independence of thought, their willingness to explore new ideas, their pursuit of cutting edge science. 
And that result, of course, is to not just to dumb us down, but to reduce our capacity to think and act as individuals independently. Mm. And what yes, I see that. I see. And it has scientific consequences. It's just it means the destruction of scientific inquiry. You said reduce our capacity to think for ourselves. For ourselves, that's right. Wow. That's that's like the key takeaway, I think. I mean, this is all really important, but the culture thing is even now what you're saying now is that, that beyond the jots and tittles of the legal issue here, this you got to really think about this for the long term. And there, there's training. people dying. We're, we're, we're training graduate students, undergraduates, and even high school students these days to seek permission before doing, even talking, even oh, yeah. thinking for yourself. The institutional oh, yes. reports, I see that way, in the classroom. Right. And they, the institutional reports claim the authority not really to stop you from publishing, nor even stop, they claim the authority to stop you from writing. Even they claim, they say they can stop you from analyzing your data. Whoa. They claim the power to stop you from thinking. And they wow. have done this actually quite broadly. It's, it, it's hard to think of anything more dangerous. Max Weber talked about Ordnungsmenschen, um, people who like to be told what to do. And you know the law can do this too much. Administrative rules is what he was thinking about. And the Germans became accustomed to orders and following orders with um, unwholesome results, to put it mildly. Uh, and then of course, we have conditions which you don't feel that it's an order, but it's just something you don't want to bump against if you want to keep getting the money or the privilege. Sure. Oh, so yeah. it's a subtle way of getting to the same, getting even further. Uh, Philip, you're a master, I think, of going deep historically, and um, and and providing a, an account of a, a more complete explanation of where we're at, where we're going if we don't become aware of this and, and try to alter it. Um, I, I've, I've read uh, your separation of church and state, which is a book that you wrote. I think it came out 20 years ago. That's right. Just, it just occurred to me that I was like, what? Well, I should have done like a 20 year anniversary episode on that book <laughs> because um, I was, I was recently speak, uh, going back and forth with the uh, Hadley Arcus and he had a book that came out like 20 years ago called natural right and the right to choose. And, uh, I wanted to get him to get to come on and talk about his dedication to Michael Yulman, uh, mm. in that book. But, um, he, um, well, he, uh, Michael Yulman is the one that made me read your separation of church and state, um, and uh it was i think what 500 pages or something like that it, it's it's a it's a nice thick book right. um and it goes so it, it's so interesting historically the what stuff was fun about, so for, i'll talk about mike in a second but i was going to say what was fun about separation church and state is that there was at least some chance for a little sex and violence which added to the story <laughs> wow um, yeah there's some creepy things that are worth discussing. Big time. Um, Michael yeah. was was really a great man. Uh, mm -hmm. He had a wisdom and a depth of knowledge and a generosity mm -hmm. of spirit that I think made him a model uh, of a scholar um, and a friend. I was corresponding with him actually just a week or two before he died. And I, 
I miss him, and so does everybody else. He was he was a remarkable man. Wow. Yeah, I agree. He was a he was a wonderful professor. Um, he Great. was he he could lecture, and he could dialogue. He could do both. Uh, some people are very strong lecturers and, <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, they lean on that. And some people are masterful um, dialogicians <laughs> um, in a Socratic way, you know, and they can really um, do that. Uh, but he could do both. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and oftentimes uh, we would go up past class time and we'd still be going. And uh so yeah, I and I, I also uh, came across your book on administrative law. Is administrative law lawful? I think it's called unlawful. something unlawful. Is administrative law unlawful? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the, because I had taken uh, Mike's class on administrative law, I was able to follow that book and appreciate it. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, and it was concerning to me, but, but the, but again, the wonderful thing about how you approach these topics is such a richness of historical detail. It's, it's, it's oftentimes charming and, and oftentimes deeply like nightmarishly disturbing. <laughs> some of the you're, stuff. you're very kind. Um, I, I, I've been told that actually it makes it dense and difficult to read. Um, mm. It's really just an addiction from my prior focus on history, but I'm, I'm trying to shake it. It come. No, no. I, 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 I would say keep you're going right. because, well, take, for example, the separation of church and state, you can go it was surprising to me. I think one of the first things that Yulman said was um, when, when we had that book, he said, go into the index and look and see if there's an entry to the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, it was, it was kind of like an introductory here to whet your appetite. Um, and it, and so we did, and it turned out there was an entry to the Ku Klux. And we were like, wait, what's going on? What's, what, what's the connection with the separation? But it was just a way to kind of, I think that's a masterful thing to do with a student to take something that looks like, okay, I know what this really is, you know, and then go, well, do you really yeah. just, for example, take, take a look at this. You know? right. it's, it's actually, it captures something that uh, Machiavelli discusses in the discourse on Livy, not the prince, the discourses, um, in which he says generalities don't persuade, but particulars do. And the Ku Klux Klan uh, is one of those particulars. Uh, most people think, oh, separation of church and state, that's great. Um, yeah. But when you explain that actually the leading 20th century advocacy group for separation of church and state was the KKK. Wow. It gets people's attention. It makes yes. them realize, oh, right. Now that doesn't prove that it's bad, but right. it might, as we we're talking about earlier, make you pause. <laughs> yes. You've said that several times. And I, and I, I think that pedagogically it's a master stroke. Really. Was very, he, yeah, my, Mike was wonderful. And I think underlined all of this is that he was ever conscious of others and putting aside his own concerns. He was infinitely considerate um, towards, you know, in the last several years, he, he, 
you know, he, he's, 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 he suffered uh, to some degree um, in ways that would make other people um, tear their hair out and go mad. Um, and he scarcely would mention it. Um, he was always interested in how are you, what can I do for you? Let's talk about what you're interested in. Um, of course, he would weave in ways to help you see the world better, but th that came in subtle ways. Um, so one day, perhaps in my next life, I will uh, I, I will be half as good as him as a teacher. <laughs> that's my aspiration. Wow, that's a good aspiration. Um, we never mentioned extortion, and I, I thought oh, right. you know I think we did mention it, but we didn't go back to it. So I thought maybe we should do sure. that. But I, I'll, I'll say this about Yulman. Um, he was a <clears throat> mysterious man to me in some respect because of what you just said, because I got the sense that, <clears throat> excuse me, I got the sense that he was a man of suffering, um, but he never talked about it. Yeah. And I, and I, and he was a closed system. And I was always curious about what was underneath, but he seemed to be not curious about it, <laughs> but right. I have to believe that he was just very private. Yeah, right. So. He, 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 um, I think going hiking in Arizona acquired mm -hmm. a, uh, a, uh, on the bottom of his feet, a, a, a bacteria that wouldn't go away. Yeah. And that, oh, that oh. yeah, exactly. All your weight is on that. Um, wow. so I, that's what I had in mind. Yeah. Warning to people go hiking in Arizona. Apparently it's not, it's, it's, it's not an unknown thing there. Um, okay. Let's talk about extortion briefly. Uh, yeah, extortion. You know, you think you like the administrative state perhaps, or conditions aren't so bad. And my thought is, well, think about the realities of how these powers are used. Uh, right. We now very commonly have government by extortion, as in it's a nice business you've got there. You want to keep uh -huh. it. Mm -hmm. uh, and this can be done administratively, as in, when agencies, because they have the powers of all three parts of government, can say, oh, we, we don't have authority to pass a rule to control you, but you know, you might want to nonetheless take our advice about how we interpret the rule, even if that isn't binding, because we can always, you know, go after, you know, we can expect, inspect your business to you don't have time to, do, to run it um, or do other things to you with our other powers. And so people submit. And what's interesting is the largest businesses in the world submit to it because they know, you know they can have their license yanked away. And that's the condition side of this. Um, if you're a bank, you need various licenses. Lo and behold, when a regulator says to you, oh, let's have a conversation. We'd like to see you do this. We're not requiring it. The law doesn't require it, but it'd be a good thing, don't you think? And you say, yes. Thank you for suggesting it. That's an excellent idea. Because if you say, I don't know if we want to do that, the regulator will look at you sideways. Are you sure? And you don't want to get to that point because then they can destroy your business. Um, yeah. And this is done quite deliberately. Um, this, you know, the one example from New York, um, there was a guy who, uh, who had the best I think it was the best or second best rated uh, restorative care unit, you know, basically a place that helped people get better um, in the state. And he was critical of the regulatory agency for uh, not enforcing the regulations that require these homes to, be, to come up to par. They didn't like this. So they just yanked his license. <laughs> <laughs> it took something like a quarter century of litigation and millions of dollars 
to figure out what was actually happening. But eventually, in federal court, he secured the emails uh, the, amongst the regulators in which they say, yeah, this guy's criticizing us. Let's go after him. Um, wow. It's just disgraceful. But of course, this happens at the federal level, too. You know, you, you're, you have a business. It's perfectly lawful. And you get a phone call from a top regulator. Hey, how are you doing? Pretty good. So we notice you're about to do X, Y, and Z. We want you to know we think it's perfectly lawful. Nothing in the regulations prohibits this. Oh, good to hear that. But we have to tell you, we don't look favorably upon it. <laughs> oh, really? No, we don't. Have a good evening. You too. And that's the end of that part of the business. Because if wow. you receive it, you're being told you will be regulated into oblivion. Um, so extortion is standard. And of course, you know, if you want to get to the crudest version, local government, you want to build a building, you, you need a zoning permit. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the Supreme Court has held it unconstitutional for the zoning boards to demand goodies for your permission to build. You know, you want to build there, give some money to a local park or let the public have access and so forth. That's clear as a matter of Supreme Court doctrine. We have three cases on it. But it hasn't gone away. In fact, I think more common these days is for the local, a member of the local board to say, oh, you want a license? By the way, you haven't contributed to my campaign recently. Or I know of one case in which it was, you know, $350,000 in my office next week would be appreciated. I mean, that's how crude it is. Wow. And this is, this is unfortunately not that unusual. So yes, extortion is now part of our mode of governance, and it's and it's called it's said to be a, it comes from experts, so it must be okay. <laughs> there, there, there are several parts of your book where you say, you 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 say the court did the Constitution says this, but the court did this. Um, well, you know, it's interesting the role of the courts. What do you think the role of the courts is in this? Um, I'd hate to say that it is to obscure the Constitution and deny us our constitutional rights. (laughs) However, um, if one didn't know that these were principled people, one might worry about that. I actually think they all are highly principled. Yeah. Um, They're very serious. The the justices and indeed almost all federal judges are very serious people. They're highly principled. That's good to know. Very hardworking. Um, But they have different principles. And in some instances, they haven't fully thought those principles through. Uh, so there is a role for all of us, uh, unfortunately, to edu- have to educate the judges, to remind them that the Constitution is not constitutional doctrine. You know, it's, it's precedent is not the same as the Constitution. They may have said a lot of silly things along the way. That's only natural, right? We all make errors, um, but we don't have to elevate error to precedent, make it binding. Um, and unfortunately, there isn't a good correction system when you've got up to the Supreme Court. In science, we take for granted that there's error. In fact, that's how we learn, right? Karl Popper and others right. out. Um, it's important to have error and to recognize it. That's, that's what we learn. We don't know anything positively, but we know negatively some things are wrong. That's what you can prove. Mm-hmm. The judicial system has to catch up with science in that regard to recognize it's okay to recognize it's okay to understand that there's error and to admit it. That's actually how we learn. That's how we advance. So the difficulty is that the system doesn't do that institutionally. We can only do that through conversation, through writing. So I hope the judges acquire the modesty of scientists who understand, at least at their best, that error is fine. 
the whole point that's it's natural and you don't have to be ashamed of it you don't you're not meant to be godlike you know, you actually just have to be fully human which is to err and then to do to write to be the best sort of human which is to recognize it and thereby learn yeah and we have constitution enforced not doctrine that sort of veers away in a cascade of unfreedom away from the constitution well so we are if we do have the role to educate the justices and the judges we have a responsibility then to definitely brush up on this stuff to to become aware of it to be able to articulate it compellingly like you're doing would you say that that's your the role of a good law professor um, surely one. I mean, teaching, of course, involves yeah. not being instructive in any way, but actually asking, quite, prompting others to think. But mm-hmm. undoubtedly, there is a role, I think, for just telling the truth. I certainly, mm. my precondition for everything really is just to be candid. I, I think it's the greatest cure for much of what ails us, whether in science or in law and politics. We may disagree about what's true. That's fine. Um, but one has to make an effort to tell the truth. Uh, and too often we've developed doctrines, names for constitutional ideas that actually deviate profoundly from the Constitution. So it becomes important to say, no, no, that's wrong. This is what the Constitution says. And there's no harm in making a correction. In fact, that would not be healthy. I love a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I, you, you must know Solzhenitsyn's Live Not By Lies. Now, yes. that's that's a rather dramatic thing. I give it actually to my constitutional law students often, um, oh. and they, they appreciate it because I think we live in a society, not of the strong ideological lies of the Soviet Union, but we have a lot of our ideological lies and they find it refreshing to see someone say, no, no, don't, don't, don't believe that stuff and repudiate it. And I think in law, I don't want to use the word lies, but we have a lot of statements that are not entirely persuasive <laughs> from our judges. And right. we all should repudiate those untruths because it's necessary if we're to protect our, our freedom and if they're to do their jobs. Solzhenitsyn is the one that said that. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. There's, there's another wonderful essay, which is a little bit more moderate from Vaclav Havel, uh, much longer. It's called The Power of the Powerless, um, which he says, look, not everyone can immolate themselves in the truth in Solzhenitsyn style. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's hinting. Um, But we all can tell the truth in minor ways. So if someone says something that's false, you might not want at a party to say, no, no, you're wrong. That would be uncouth. But you could sit back and simply not affirm it. There are all sorts of ways to register dissent from untruth. Uh, But ultimately, the more of us who who actively repudiate untruth, the better. And of course, not with some overconfidence that we are the only ones who know the truth, but it, we should all try to strive to understand the truth and not be afraid to say it because it's politically incorrect or other or or mildly yeah. disturbing to people. That, that's re- that's refreshing to hear. As I'm listening to you and and discussing this these things with you, um, it your character strikes me as someone who's courageous and bold and optimistic. Um, (laughs) And I wonder it may be some people listening to this, uh, some people on our side of the fence at my side of the fence, I mean, uh, politically can feel um, 
Well, it looks like anger, but I think it's really a deep sadness. Um, and it's, it's a despair, I think, that a lot of people feel all across the political spectrum. And I wonder, do you, um, are, do you just have more serotonin in your brain or I mean, <laughs> no, what's, just, what's the secret to your optimism? Just, Is it? It's historical perspective. Look, I, I don't know your background. Um, forgive me for being a little personal. I don't normally do this, but let me tell you a little bit about mine. Um, I'm a product of World War II. My father was a Landcraft officer in the Solomons. Um, my mother at age eight or nine in, in uh, 1933 or 30, it must've been 1933 in Germany, um, in class was asked to sing the Horst Vessel lead um, and to do the Nazi salute. And needless to say, uh, she had very good work, wartime personality. She, she understood what's what. She, of course, refused. Um, and uh, she, of course, my grandmother, when she heard this, was very concerned. She said, Olata, you have to learn this. Don't do this. This is going to get us a lot of trouble. So she taught her the horse vessel lead and to do the salute. Um, but of course, my mother, an independent soul, still didn't do it. And when my grandfather, who actually had been a distinguished German officer in World War I, um, came into the kitchen and saw my mother being trained to do this, he said, we're leaving tomorrow. So he left for England the next day. And my mother was sent off um, to, uh, to, to, to Leipzig, actually, to attend a private school there for a year before she was shipped off to England with a mailing label around her neck. Um, so our parents had to deal with really serious threats. We don't. This is trivia, right? Um, it, it, is, it should do no more than stir the blood. Um, it's an opportunity for us to understand who we really are. What could happen to you if you tell the truth? Someone will unfriend you on Facebook. If you're un really unlucky, you'll lose your job. But of course, you don't have to say things. And my father always used to say, you can say anything if you say it the right way. One should always be courteous to others, respectful of their views, and then in that context, disagree. So there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for good-spirited disagreement on fundamentals. It makes one feel alive. As a child, I thought all the great issues were settled. No, they're not. Galileo's fight is still our fight, right? The fight against the Star Chamber is still our fight. Um, and fortunately, we can fight it in ways that will not, I trust, involve a civil war or imprisonment. Um, so we get it easy. What and fun. That, that historical perspective, did you have that as a kid then, just growing up in the house that you did? did um, and and yeah, then it I, naturally went to the academics? Um, yeah, I, I suppose. We grew up in a big house in the woods with oceans of old books um oh cool and and of course reading it gets to reading habits of course mm -hmm. right it reads outside one's culture or to be more precise in the older books in what was our culture um one gets a perspective that sometimes is useful tell us about your work with the alliance um sorry i'm the new, civil, go back liberties to alliance. new civil liberties alliance <laughs> that was um, i had some yale law students help me name that and i think they did a good oh, job cool um, right. So this was founded only five years ago. Actually, I love, the, I love the name, New Civil Liberties Alliance. Right. And so, you know, think of the ACLU, right? We do what they're meant to do. <laughs> we actually defend your civil liberties. Um, and in particular against agencies, the administrative state, whether working through orders or conditions, because that's the greatest civil liberties threat to us these days. 
Um, you know, mm -hmm. it used to be that there were other threats to civil liberties. Um, and most people used to think of the administrative state as a structural problem, but not affecting us. But now it really does bear down, not just on corporations, but on individuals, and it threatens our right to govern ourselves through, elect, through, through the vote, vote, right to vote, our right to go to court, to get a judge, to get a jury, our right of speech. It affects all of our rights. Almost all of our procedural rights have been gutted by this. So, you know, because the government can choose, can it go through against a ju judge and jury? It doesn't have to. It can go through, admi through administratively or conditions. So it, it is very dangerous. And uh, we have an office in Washington, about 20 employees, and we're busy um, protecting civil liberties by, through litigation. And we do it pro bono. So if you have a problem with administrative power or conditions, I can't say we'll always take your case. Um, it has to be a case that actually advances the cause of limiting dangerous power. Um, but if it's a suitable case, um, we take our cases for free. We take your cases for free. And does the jurisdiction matter? Is it always in Washington? The, no, the no, jurisdiction? Okay. just lawyers tend to hang out in Washington, although okay. increasingly they telecommute. And uh we have people working for us across the country. How, how do you get the money for that to pay for that? You got to have the lights on. You got to, you got to have the cell phones turned on. You got to have kind the car. Of, I was so naive. Um, uh, a number of years ago, I thought, you know, no one's litigating this quite right. I, there are better ways to litigate this because people are litigating this for a hundred years and have not done a good job. The administrative power just grows. So I thought there are better ways of doing right. And then, you know, I go to parties downtown in New York. I'm a fine, unfashionable guy, um, slovenly. And I turn up there in my, you know, sort of third-rate suit, talking to these people with first-rate suits. And I'm just chatting with them. I say, wouldn't it be good to have a civil rights organization to do this? And people looked at me as if I was crazy. But then I was, you know, I, I mentioned this to some very nice man. And he says, oh, that's a good idea. Here, let me give you some money. Whoa. Uh, thanks, I said. And and then um, another a wow. friend of mine said, oh, you should meet someone else. And he gave us even more money. And before I knew it, there was money to hire people. Um, so we have, we have some foundation money um, and a lot of individual money because people, people increasingly get it. And I, th I, I thank my old colleague, Barack Obama, for this. And of course, uh, President Biden. Um, if you rule by pen and phone call, and you affect individuals, they'll understand. <laughs> you, that, you, know, you may not be interested in the administrative state, but it is interested in you. And that's why there's funding. Wow, so many good quotes. I think that's the only time anybody's ever thanked Barack Obama on this podcast you know, so far. He was, he was a colleague of mine. <laughs> though his tongue in cheek. But, okay. No, and he's, and, you know, and he was, I, I was told, oh, we've got a, a failed state senator who's now a colleague just working with us for a while. He's a very nice guy. And so I thought, okay. So I walked down the hallway and knocked on his door just to say hi and welcome him. Mm -hmm. but he wasn't there. And a week later, I went and knocked on his door again. He wasn't there. And then I realized generally he wasn't there. Um, I thought, oh, well. Little did I realize that he actually was about to be president of the United States. It's proof mm -hmm. of my political naivete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you were busy. <laughs> Sounds like you were busy doing other things. Yeah. But um, yeah, when you were thanking him, I think you were doing that tongue in cheek because because of well, the regulation, the right. growth of, of uh, Obamacare or whatever you were talking about. You, you, I remember Lenin said, it's got to get worse before it gets better. Well, in the last 20 years, it got worse. Mm 
And in particular, mm-hmm. it began to bear down on individuals, not just corporations. So then people paid attention. Uh, how, what if someone wants to not only avail themselves of your services there at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, or they maybe know somebody that would need your help, but how would they uh, be able to get in touch with that organization in order just, to maybe give money it. to it? Sure. You just type in New Civil Liberties Alliance mm-hmm. to your, your web browser of choice. Um, <laughs> you should pop up and uh, you, you, can, you can contact the organization um, by phone or email um, or you can give money. Um, there are buttons to push to get to give money. And of course, we welcome those donations because the reality is, although we are fortunately funded, we always need more to pay for the best possible lawyers. Absolutely. It's very expensive. And they're making, and they're making a real dent in this. That's um, great. You know, 10 years from now, even five years ago, sorry, five years ago, you never would have thought this ministry of state would be, you know, in question. Now mm-hmm. it is. Um, the delegation doctrine, Chevron, these are all now up for grabs. Yes. Yes. And that's our litigation. Um, that's exciting news. The, would you say that, I'm just curious about how you'd phrase this, um, you're an academic, mm-hmm. would you say that this is activism on your part, or would you, <laughs> would you not say that? Right, right. That's, an, that's something I've worried about. Um, I was, I've long been very fastidious, uh, so I, 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 you know, I never signed briefs, I just did my work mm-hmm. and was assiduously purely academic, more than I suspect than almost any of my colleagues at any school I've taught at. Um, but what I, one of the things I learned from my parents is that, well, you should never seek trouble. If it falls in your lap, you have to stand up. And so the, the, when my friends were being censored through IRBs, well, I, for three years, I thought, no, I, I don't want to get involved. I don't like administrative law. It's boring. And then I realized, no, no, it's interesting. It's important. And I have a duty. I, since I understand it, I have no choice. So I felt obliged to start getting involved. So it was more a sense of duty than desire. And if I could get rid of the administrative state and and unlawful conditions tomorrow, I'd go back to studying the 17th century in a heartbeat. It's interrupted my scholarship. Would you say that you don't enjoy doing this? (laughs) Well, I do and I don't. There are are satisfactions in it, obviously. Mm -hmm. Great satisfactions in it. Um, But it is a distraction too. But what doesn't always have a choice. So I know I know what I need to be doing, and Some, that's gratifying. I think someone listening to this in the future is probably wondering this. So I'll, I'm going to ask: Do you feel alone on that campus? Do you feel like, and, or in the profession, um, right. with a, you know, with your students? I don't know. Um, I don't know how you'd want to answer that. I know that you have active students, current students, former students. You got to be sensitive to their their feelings and and. But we are just interested. You're an educator. Um, what is it like teaching? First uh, of all, in New York City? I, I love all my students. Uh, perhaps especially when they disagree with me. That's a real conversation to be had. That means they're thinking for themselves, and awesome. it's not my goal in teaching to uh, get people to think like me, um, but to get them to think. Um, so I will often introduce my ideas, but you know, I'm quite open to being proved wrong. And when sometimes students do prove me wrong, it's deeply gratifying. And I say as much to the class. Uh, and it seems to me there's no, 
one can't assume one's right in academia. One always has to assume one might be wrong. Can you give an example of when a student proved you wrong about something? Um, right. So <laughs> I, I was complaining about experts and I forget the exact details, but he pointed out some instances where ex experts might tend to be right. I thought that wasn't bad. Now, in the mm -hmm. end, as I thought about it afterwards, it's actually a question of absence of proof. We just don't have evidence on some of these questions. Yeah, but in yeah. that case, I need to be more hesitant. Oh, uh, I thought that was great. Um, so uh, great. So I was. I really appreciated the students' arguments. Um, look, uh, hmm. two thoughts. First of all, one should one always has to treat other people with respect, even when they're wrong, because there'll be chances when you'll be wrong, and you'll want that respect, even when you get it wrong, right? Um, when no one has a monopoly of truth, and that's a good foundation for good relations with everybody. Um, and I also remember Rartan Gregorian, former head of the public library here, saying, being asked about this sort of thing. He said, you know, in my neck of the woods, and I, he said, you know, it's very important to show people respect. And he said, I, I never let anyone lose face. Now, there are some times when you want someone else to lose face politically and in a lawsuit, right? But on the whole, I think he's right, right? What's the old joke about an English gentleman? Someone who never gives offense unintentionally. Right, you better choose when to do it. But to get to feeling alone, look, the goal of any uh, group that wants to marginalize alternative points of view will to be to make you feel alone. There's a normal point of view and you're a deviant. You shouldn't mm -hmm. believe that. That's dissent, that's disgraceful, disgraceful yeah. that's familiars, and so forth. Yep. Uh, so first of all, I think one should embrace being a little different. Um, if you're a member of a religious minority, one soon gets accustomed to that. Yeah, and that's it's, right. not, it's not a source of concern. It's a mm -hmm. source of satisfaction to be different and to be independent minded. One always needs to be different than the crowd. My mother would remind me all the time of this. And I think sensibly, sometimes the crowd is right, but not, al not always. And you have to distinguish and make your own judgment. And then, of course, there's the reality that one's not alone. Um, so there are students here and some faculty who will agree on all sorts of issues. Will they agree on all? No. But there's agreement that transcends ideology and politics. So liberal students will see the merits of some conservative views and conservative students will see the merits of some liberal points of view. And amongst faculty, there are all sorts of faculty who are not very political and don't express themselves publicly, but are not unsympathetic to my views. Um, so you can converse here with people who disagree with you radically or people who agree. It's just that some of it's more vocal and some of it isn't, but one should never feel alone. On the contrary, there, there, there are always friends out there. You just have to find them. Your, your parents, your, your mother, they seem like amazing people. They were. Um, and I, saw, I perhaps shouldn't go on about them, but since we did a little memorial for Mike Ullman, um, I thought I'd mention them too, because they, they were remarkable. I'm, I'm glad you did, because you. I'm sure people are wondering, wait, hold on. How, how do, how do I get to be like this? <laughs> Maybe their parents weren't like that. And they're, they're feeling like something that comes naturally to you. No one's perfect. Right. Even yeah. the best of parents. And right, right, um, right. I must say profound, a profound source of help for me and everything are not only friends, and I've blessed with some remarkable friends, um, but also reading, reading older authors who are thoughtful on a host of subjects. Uh, it's not as if conversation is just between two contemporaries, you and me. We can converse 
with some of the greatest thinkers in history, right? From Socrates to Francis Bacon, right? Um, and each one has something to contribute on a, on a different topic, right? So there's a wealth of learning there that is a, a resource for all of us. Um, so th that's one of the reasons I love history. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's no end there of, of resources, personal and intellectual. So a great novel does this, right? I'm reading, rereading War and Peace at the moment. Wow. Anytime I feel like writing a novel, I just pick, open a random page in War and Peace and I realize, oh, right. I don't write, that man can write. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. But the, the experience one gains through reading about other people's lives, is, whether it's a biography or a novel, of course, or it, it can help. It sounds like you're doing the perfect thing for you because if you, <laughs> I mean, what better job could you have to, right. that allows you to read and write and mm -hmm try to get people to think. Which... I wish there was more time for it. Yeah, um, yeah. I was, I was once wow. offered a position on the federal bench on the circuit court, and um, it took me, I, I, I tried to take it seriously for two days. Um, <laughs> in the end, I, I, I know what I like to do. Um, so wow. that wasn't that difficult. To... <laughs> wow, wow. It's, it's good. Well, oh. your role could be um, helping uh, prompt the kind of thought that moves things forward, truly forward, and on people who are on the circuit courts, hopefully. We'll see. And most they, of the most of the decisions and federal decisions are are reviewed by them and made by them. So right. And so. you know, judges are just like the rest of us. They're very, very the best of them are very academic. They have a sense of modesty approaching what they do. They're trying to get it right. Um that's very admirable. And so you, you have to be aware that the students you're having, some of them may be on the bench. I tell point. them that every year. I tell mm -hmm. my students, many of you will be high, high level executive positions or on the bench. Some will even be senators and therefore learn while you can and, and, and take it seriously. That's right. Well, uh, Philip Hamburger, we thank you for your time and your energy and your you. wonderful insight and just sharing your personality with us too. And a little bit about who you are, how you got to be the way you are and the encouragement that you've given us today too, which I think we all need. We all need encouragement in these times and perspective and your advice. And so we recommend the book it's called again, purchasing submission conditions, power, freedom, and freedom, uh, Harvard University Press. Uh, the author is Philip Hamburger, and he is the founder and CEO of New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is doing what the ACLU is supposed to do, <laughs> protect, defend civil liberties from encroachments by the administrative state. So thank you so much. Thank you. Great on. pleasure. I really appreciate it.